You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Well, come on, all of you big, strong men. Uncle Sam needs your help again. Yeah, he's got himself in a terrible jam. Way down yonder in Vietnam. So put down your books and pick up a gun. Gonna have a whole lot of fun. And it's one, two, three. What are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. Next stop is Vietnam. And it's five, six, seven. Open up the pearly gates. Well, there ain't no time to wonder why. Whoopee, we're all gonna die. Yeah, come on, Wall Street. Hello and welcome to the final episode of In Country, the podcast that takes a complete look at the Marvel comic series The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. And yes, you heard that right. After this episode, I am hopping on the theoretical freedom bird and going back into the world, leaving the Vietnam War and the chronicles of the war behind. For this final episode, by the way, I have saved the very final issue of The Nam. I'm going to be looking at The Nam issue number 84. I won't have any historical context for you since I covered that in episode number 99, but I will spend some time reflecting on the series as a whole and this podcast before I say goodbye for the final time. Before I get to that, though, I do want to talk about the song from this episode. It's I Feel Like I'm Fixin' to Die Rag by Country Joe and the Fish, a protest song that was one of the more iconic anti-war songs of the 1960s. It was originally recorded in 1965, but it was re-recorded and released as a single in 1967 and then became enormously popular. It did not hit the Billboard charts the way that others did, but it was popular, and as is the case with a number of songs from the era, was met with its fair share of controversy, especially because of what became known in their live performance as the F*** Chorus. Here's what that's about, courtesy of the song's Wikipedia page. The song was a popular attraction in the band's live performance, and in the summer of 1968, the first chance of slightly altered version known as the F*** Cheer appeared in New York City at the Schaefer Summer Music Festival among a crowd of nearly 10,000. Drummer Gary Chicken Hirsch suggested that the opening chorus spell out F*** which was positively received by young listeners and led to unexpected radio exposure of the album version on both alternative radio stations and AM radio. Although Hirsch was never explained why he made the change, writer James E. Perrone has speculated in his book Songs of the Vietnam Conflict that it was, quote, a rebellious counterculture political act demonstrating free speech rights in the mid-1960s. However, executives from the Ed Sullivan Show were present at the concert and barred Country Joe and the Fish from their scheduled appearance and any future performances on the show. The band, by the way, did play the song at Woodstock in 1969 and did the chorus along with the song. And two bits of trivia. First, the song was regularly broadcast into Hua Lo Prison, or the Hanoi Hilton, in North Vietnam to American prisoners of war by their captors. The prisoners later reported that it actually boosted their morale and they sang along to it. And in 2008, it was referenced on the advanced placement exam in United States history. Our comic book is the nom number 84 and according to mike's amazing world of comics it was released on july 27th 1993 with a september 1993 cover date and a price of a dollar 75. the cover is by alberto sai chan and depicts north vietnamese soldiers shooting at a and getting shot and killed by a u.s helicopter the cover copy says the end which is about as much of an indication on the cover that you'll get that this is the series final issue. There is a text piece in the letter column that I'm going to go over later, and we've read other pieces from letter columns in recent issues that mention that this is going to be the last issue of the series, so it wasn't exactly slapped on. The cover does reflect the story inside, which is mostly going to be from the point of view of the NVA and VC, but part of me does side with some of the fans who had written in and were hoping for a send-off featuring the characters they'd come to know. 
I guess we got that in the previous issue. It is action-filled as well, if not a little hard to follow because it is so busy. I know that in the letter pages, Tim Toohey referred to Albertus Ichan as having a style like Michael Golden, but I think that Golden would have composed this cover just slightly better. I mentioned in episode 97 that issue 83 was the end of the Ed Marks story, and that was about 90% true. Ed does make an appearance in this issue, but it's only on the first and last pages. He is doing duty as a journalist and talking to a sergeant who is packing up to head back to the world in a couple of hours. The sergeant confirms it and then says that Ed can help himself to anything that gets left behind after he takes off. Ed notices what looks like a child's drawing tacked to a post in the sergeant's barracks above some nudie pictures. The sergeant says, Oh, I don't know. I found it and liked it. Being a career soldier has its drawbacks. I don't have a family, and sometimes I try to imagine what the kid is like who drew it. I suppose you think I must be getting soft in the head, but there are times I think, you know, maybe I've been missing something. Yes, Sarge, replies Ed. I know what you mean. They're the losers in this insane, stupid war. The kids, man. The kids are the one who suffer the most. Sarge offers the picture to Ed, and Ed picks it up and says, Nice-looking family. And then we are taken back into the past, into a Vietnamese village, and the title of the story, which is The Letter. It was written by Don Lomax, art was by Alberto Saichan, Phil Felix did the lettering, John Calise did the colors, Tim Tui was the assistant editor, Don Daly was the editor, and Tom DeFalco was the editor-in-chief. Our narration box reads... Yen Wang was five years old when she drew the picture on the hard-packed dirt floor of her family's home located in the rich Red River Delta near, region near Nam Dinh in what the imperialist Americans called North Vietnam. Her father had been gone three years. She scarcely remembers his face, but his memory has been kept alive by her mother's constant reminders that someday they will be a complete family once again. But that can only happen when the American colonialists are driven from their land and Vietnam can reunite with the South and again be one. What a joyful day that will be. At present, Yen must be content with remembering her father in her own way. The drawing is for him. We see a young girl drawing the picture in her family's house while her brother sits in a quarter and reads. Her mother prepares food and pigs and chickens roam about. It's been about three years since her father went off to fight and nobody has heard a word about whether or not he's still alive. On this particular day, Yen's cousin Tuan is leaving for the south with his unit and Yen's mother knows that he's probably not coming back as soldiers head south for the duration. They see Tuan off and Yen gives some, him the drawing in an envelope. Even though he knows that it's next to impossible that he will run into Yen's father, he takes the drawing and promises to deliver it. He looks back on his village, making a promise to free his land from hordes of western barbarians invading it, and then travels by truck convoy to the staging area near Dong Hoi, which is some 75 kilometers north of the DMZ. He is put into a three-man cell and becomes close friends with the other two men, Lon and Pham. On their way to the next mission, they discuss how where they are going doesn't matter as long as they get to fight against the imperialist enemy, and one of them utters the phrase, Dolce et decorum et perpetria mori, which if you remember from way back in episode 29 when I covered Eric Maria remarks, all quiet on the Western Front, means it is sweet and right to die for one's country. This, as our narration box notes, is further indoctrination to the cause, something that had become virtually at birth, and they are fully committed to the crusade of what the North Vietnamese refer to as reunification. The mission, as they know, is hard. They lose some men forging a river, and Tuan dies at a way station when he succumbs to malaria, but he gives Lon the letter and tells him to make sure it's delivered. He says he will, even though he has no idea what's in it. Sometime later, we see Lon and Pham resting against a tree, and Lon stares at the letter. Then suddenly there is an airstrike, and everybody runs for cover. Lon drops the letter and goes back for it, but is killed before he can reach safety. Pham sees that there is a letter in Lon's dead hand, and when asked about it, says that Lon had told him that it was important, so he decides to shoulder the task of delivering it. Three months later, the platoon reaches its destination, which is a large staging area near the Cambodian border. There are only two-thirds of them left, and they are starving. 
They arrive hoping for at least a little time for recovery, but that won't happen because they find out that they are about to undertake a large operation to overrun an Arvin firebase, and every man will be needed. As they prep, Fan explains what he is doing with the letter and says that it's addressed to Nguyen Long. He says that it must be very important since two of his friends died while bringing it south. The two men agree to take the letter with them if Fam happens to be killed. The assault in the firebase begins. Casualties are high, and the soldiers are surprised that they are not fighting Americans as they told they would be. Fam is in the second wave attack, and as they advance on the base, they are surprised by the American helicopters, which fire on and kill several of the soldiers around him. His instinct is to run, but he stays put, firing back at the chopper. Fam is gunned down and slowly dies throughout the night. The next morning, as his fellow soldiers clean up the bodies, Fam's friend, whose name is Hien, finds the letter and says that he promised he would deliver it. Several months passed, and Hien spends time asking everyone he meets if they know Nguyen Long until he finally comes across someone who says he knows him, that he's with the National Liberation Front, which our editor notes is the official name for the Viet Cong, and then he is down around Chu Chi. Just then, they are hit with artillery fire. The soldiers begin moving underground and into the jungle while choppers carrying GIs land in the clearing where they are situated. They stand out in the open and we get a lieutenant, who is green, dressing down the troops with a long-winded speech. The sergeant tells him that this is no time for lectures and that they need to take cover. The lieutenant pulls rank and the sarge is all fine. And almost immediately after that, Hien and the NVA soldiers begin firing, shooting the lieutenant in the head. A firefight begins, but the NVA are outmanned and they begin retreating. Hien gives the letter to another soldier named Trung, and as he makes his way into the jungle, he hears an explosion, and Trung realizes that Hien is dead. For a moment, he thinks of disposing the letter, but then he puts it in his bag, and he moves on. Six months later, Trung comes across a courier with the NLF-VC. She confirms that not only is Nguyen Long and Chu Chi, she is headed there later that day and will see it is delivered. That courier, a 16-year-old girl named Nok, rides her bike on roads through the jungle, passing by a convoy of American soldiers who catcall her and then camouflaging herself so she can elude a battalion of tanks. She reaches a river and then swims to a cave underneath that is an entrance to the tunnel system. She gives along the dispatches she was carrying as well as the letter. He thanks her and tells her to go get something to eat while he prepares the reply that she will courier back upriver. He opens the letter and see, when he sees the drawing done by his daughter, he cries. Unfortunately, it's at that very moment that American troops discover the entrance to the tunnel complex and they pour gasoline down before throwing live grenades on top of it. The tunnel system is destroyed and while Long and the soldiers try to get to the river, we're not sure if they survive. We end with the sergeant's words to Ed Marks. I found it one morning just floating along near the bank of the Saigon River, he says. I couldn't make out what it was that I realized what it was. Just a school kid's drawing. Probably blew away from the kid on the way home from school. He offers the drawing to Ed, who says he'll keep it, and then says, No story or anything, Ed. Just a kid's drawing, you know? Just a kid's drawing. You know, my first instinct back when I read this for the first time a few years ago was to feel unfortunate that this was the final issue of the series. A guest penciler who did a special issue type of story instead of a tale of our regular characters. But after reading and rereading the entire series through the course of this show, I've come to really appreciate this issue as a finale. The first reason is that the letter is our, well, I don't know if it's technically a MacGuffin because nobody's really after it the way they are, like the Maltese Falcon or anything like that. But it does drive the story along because it allows us to follow several soldiers and gives us an overview or tour of various people who are fighting for the North Vietnamese cause. I'm sure that if Don Lomax had been able to do several issues from the NVA's point of view, he would have had a different object being used as the main plot device. And since he only had a single issue, the idea that a little girl wrote a letter to her father and we're following it to its destination through some harrowing life-ending experiences is a pretty good one. And not only that, but through that letter and through the feelings of a little girl being left at home while her father fights for her country, we get another take on what is a universal experience in war and a universal theme of war literature. War is tough on families and can both figuratively and literally rip them apart. 
And as is said in the very beginning of the issue, it is extremely tough on the children who don't know any better. We see this in other war novels and media, and even saw it in the context of the Vietnamese when we looked at Heaven and Earth in episode number 98. And like Heaven and Earth, we also see that there was a sense of duty and idealism that was behind these soldiers in this war, much like we talk about American soldiers fighting and dying to defend our sense of freedom. The political philosophy espoused by the North Vietnamese may have been in conflict with the philosophy that Americans during that era and many Americans today held and still hold, but what Lomax does with this story is try to treat these soldiers with a sense of respect. Yes, there are the uses of colonialist and imperialist to describe American soldiers throughout the narration or the dialogue of the NVA soldiers, and that does feel a little clunky at times. But I don't get the feeling that Lomax is trying to convince us that these people were somehow inherently evil or fighting for some sort of satanic type of cause. Yes, in the Punisher story that I covered several episodes back, and that would actually be released after this one, I think that Lomax does lean into portraying the North Vietnamese as barbaric, especially when it comes to the treatment of American POWs. But here... It's more about the soldiers, their mission, and their operations, not just to be fodder for Frank Castle's heroics. It's pretty much like what we're seeing from the American side through most of the series. In fact, one of the best scenes in this entire issue is the ambush of the American platoon where Hien gives the letter to Trung as he stays behind to provide cover for the first wave of retreating soldiers. We have seen this scene play out countless times since issue number one, even right down to the more experienced sergeant telling the greeny lieutenant that standing in the middle of an open field and lecturing his troops on proper etiquette and procedure is an incredibly stupid idea, something that's confirmed when the lieutenant gets his head blown off. And while we see the scene that we would usually get in our book, we also get the before, during, and after from the other side. In fact, after the choppers take off from the LZ, one of the MVA soldiers asks, why do the Americans not move to cover? And another replies, because they are stupid, which precedes the conversation between the sergeant and lieutenant. Still, it's not like they win and we get that scene where the litter again is passed and the MVA retreat to the jungle. It's, fully, it's a fully realized scene. It's well-paced, it's well-illustrated, provides the right type of drama for that moment. And then, the climax of the piece, when the letter does get delivered and Murphy's Law basically comes into play, because the girl who was the courier did not lead the Americans to the VC hideout. They actually happened to find the opening by sheer coincidence when raiding a nearby village. Well, that scene is a perfect illustration of anything can happen and that these wars have a terrible cost. The guy is a father, and he cries while he reads his daughter's letter, which is something that humanizes him and does so in four panels at the bottom of the page before the tunnels are completely blown to bits. I hate to say that we're rooting for the group of people who were essentially the enemy throughout this whole issue, because rooting for is a phrase that implies that we're in a Joes versus Cobra situation, and that's not applicable to this story. Instead, we're rooting for the letter to find its destination, and we are, okay, maybe I am genuinely sad when it gets to the little girl's father, only to see him be killed. Plus, beyond Tuan, who is the cousin of Yen, the girl who wrote the letter, Nobody who handles it know what's in it or why it's being delivered. They just have that much camaraderie with their fellow soldier that they take it upon themselves to continue this particular mission. And when we pull back even further, we see that the sergeant who found Yen's picture really has no idea about anything that went into where it got there. Granted, he's got one foot out on the plane and probably couldn't care less, but he keeps the letter only because it reminds him of family without really applying that to thinking about whether or not the little girl who drew it is missing any member of her own family. I don't think that Don Lomax is trying to paint any picture of American soldiers being cruel or unfeeling in any way, but I think this might be a subtle nod to the idea that in war, we don't humanize our enemy because we don't want to. Think back to the contrast between how Paul comes to think of Gerard Duval in All Quiet, which is immediately followed by his watching the snipers pick off their opponents as if they were in a game. In the latter case, the enemy is another person but isn't seen as human because it just makes the job easier. They're a target. Lomax is giving us that through the framing device. 
And it works so well, especially considering it's just now that we're getting what's basically really the only, the second full story from the Vietnamese point of view and the first from the enemy fighters. Alberto Sai Chan was a mixed bag when it came to the art on the Punisher and the Nam final invasion trade. And I remember noting that some of his depiction of the Vietnamese border than racist caricature. Here that's subdued and the fact that John Calise is using bolder colors definitely helps. The characters' faces look less yellow and look more natural. The action scenes are much calmer than the Punisher ones. I don't know if calmer is the best uh, word here, but they seem as realistic as what Wayne Van Zandt and Michael Golden were doing during their runs, and they are not as cartoonish as what we were getting from some of those Frank Castle scenes. I especially like how even though we have a new artist on our last issue, we still have a grid throughout. The borders of the grid are classic, and they're not crazy 90s jagged, and there's only two splash pages. If Alberto Saichan had stayed on as regular penciler or was called for more stories like this, it would have been a good match. Unfortunately, as we know, that wasn't the case. And looking at Saichan's career via Mike's Amazing World, he's done much more inking than full-on artwork, working on kids' books like The Flintstones and Looney Tunes. This is a very good issue and a very good note to end on, especially because it turned our attention to the people who were fighting for their own country and gave us a different point of view and perhaps a bit of perspective on the war. I'll be back with letters, ads, and my final thought. So stick around. A historic moment tonight. The Berlin Wall can no longer contain the East German people. It is 1989. After 28 years of dividing a city and symbolizing the divide of the Cold War, the Berlin Wall opens up. And from there, everything changes. Fallen Walls, Open Curtains is a podcast miniseries from Pop Culture Affidavit and hosted by me, Tom Paneris. From November 2019 until December 2021, I am going to take a look at the events that took place 30 years ago, beginning with the fall of the Berlin Wall and ending with the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. Along the way, I will be flashing back to the landmark and not-so-landmark pieces of popular culture that reflected and defined the Cold War. The first episode will drop on November 9th, 2019, and future episodes will be released quarterly at popcultureaffidavit.com and twotruefreaks.com. So, there is a letter column this issue, but I am going to divide my coverage of it in two because there is one letter and an editorial essay that bids us farewell. I'm going to save the editorial essay for after the ads, so I'll start with the letter. It is from Elizabeth Collar from Seattle, Washington. She says, To the Nam people, I have been buying the NOM since issue number one came out. The idea of a history book running in real time was intriguing, and I have been interested in the Vietnam era since my mother protested and my father voted for Nixon. At first, I didn't read the comic, just putting each issue into a box, sort of preserving history. About two years ago, I was looking for information on the Vietnam War, and I remembered all those back issues. I read 50 issues in two days. Though not all my questions were answered, I was impressed by the information given and by the coverage of events. Through the NAM and the books I found, I got what I was looking for. I have visited the wall many times in the last 12 years, and the power it holds over me is as strong as ever. An entire town of people, more people than I think I've met in 32 years, have their names engraved on the wall. My inability to find a reason why these names are there still bothers me, and I hope it bothers others. I don't wish to see another wall for another war. A couple of weeks ago, President Clinton became the first commander-in-chief to honor those who served in Vietnam on Memorial Day. I have a better understanding of the underlying politics that are still in action today due to your and others' efforts. I hope others are as fortunate. 
My request, complete the nom. Bundle the remaining issues into a graphic novel or several one-shots. Don't allow yourselves and your work to be walked off the scene. Forgotten. For now, my thanks for your work, Lisbeth Collar. And next to it, in what would have been a next issue box, is the POWMIA You Are Not Forgotten logo. So like I said, there is a editorial piece from T- Tim Tui. I'm going to get to that in a little bit. But right now, we're going to look one more time at ads. We have a score football cards ad. Score football over 3,000 pounds of turf stomping, body smashing superheroes in every pack. They're big, they're strong, they're tough. And you want your favorite NFL superheroes. You got to get score. And we see Thurman Thomas, Eric Metcalf, Ricky Waters, Rodney Hampton, Mo Gardner, and Todd Light. Random insert subset cards known as the franchise. They're the ultimate superhero cards. They're hard to find. And who knows, there could be one in your next pack. 15 cards for 69 cents plus a bonus pinnacle gold card in every pack. More cards, more great players, more for you. Score. Game Gear has the same ad for WrestleMania Steel Cage Challenge, Spider-Man Return of the Sinister Six, and T2. We have an ad for Valiant Trading Cards, the Valiant Era, now available in trading cards. There's a Harbinger card we see. It looks like Magnus versus Ray, Solar Man of the Atom card, and Exo Mana War. Find your favorite characters in the Valiant Era 8 card foil packs by the Upper Deck Company. There are 120 cards featuring Valiant cover art and plot synopses. Two exciting nine-card insert sets and a special chase card, so see your local comic retailer. Uh, one last time, guys. Entertainment this month. The main image is that of Azbats going after Catwoman. I don't know who did this. It's nothing from... It might be Dave Dorman, but I can't exactly get the signature. But Azbats is saying, don't miss another issue. ETM is the biggest of the best. And all orders postmarked by August 31st of 1993 get a free limited poster featuring the new Batman in his costume. So we have the gripping Nightfall storyline concludes as a shocking new Batman is introduced in Batman 500. Highlighted by a foil-enhanced die-cut cover, the Batman 500 Collector's Edition is a must-have. X-Men featuring stunning hologram covers. These three issues are a can't miss. And no X-Men fan will want to miss X-Men 2099, number one. X-Men 25, Wolverine 75, and Excalibur 31, all hologram covers. That's Fatal Attractions, I believe. There are other hot X-Men titles and X-Overs. Ah, see what we did there. There's the the blood tie stories going on now, etc., etc., Image is giving us Extreme number one, Gen X number one, which is an intro to a hot new team by Jim Lee. The Violator returns by McFarlane and Spawn 14. Strike Force number one by Mark Silvestri looks good. Super Patriot number one, new by Eric Larson and Keith Giffen. Star Trek Deep Space Nine featuring a new original story as this monthly series will be blisteringly hot. You can order number one for $1.95. You can get a special of three or more each for $1.75. Or you can get 50 copies for $85. And that includes a free limited edition hologram cover version. And that is blazing hot. Welcome to the Ultraverse, the future of superhero comics. That's also hot. You've got the Exiles number one and two, Firearm number zero, and a video that goes with it for $13.95. Huh. Something I'll probably have to go find. Firearm number one, Freaks three, Hardcase four, Mantra three, Prime three, Prototype one and two, Strangers four, and The Solution one. Uh, the mega hits are The Sword of Azrael trade, The Cyberforce trade, Deathmate cards from Tops. And from Upper Deck, so two card sets, and uh, you know the usual. So this is this is it. We are in peak '90s people, just as the Nam is starting to go away. And by the way, a quick thanks to Andy Leyland who <laughs> recorded that drop of him saying "hot" over and over and um, in various forms years ago for me because I said it out loud on a podcast and he sent it my way. I don't think he realized that I was going to beat that thing into the ground. I'm officially retiring it as of this episode, so you will not hear me use the Andy Leyland hot 
drop again, but I do want to thank him for sending that. I don't think he's ever going to do that again because he just knows what he unleashed on the world. So hot it's burned the flesh from your hands. That smells really gross. Anyway, we have bullpen bulletins this time around. There's a Mighty Marvel fan phone. If you call 516-352-1212, it's the cost of a regular call from anywhere in the United States and won't exceed 35 cents. Tom DeFalco is doing the, uh, the, the Tom Talks thing. He is talking about exes and... The Marty Marvel Mimic Contest says, Every time you spot a character or comic book title, which is obviously based on one of ours, I'd like you to send a letter to us. Oh, so he's basically, he's kind of throwing shade at Image because he's talking about how, like, you know, they've got all these X titles. And then he said he was in a comic shop and he said, Curious as to how much praise our illustrious imitators wanted to heap on us. I spent an enjoyable few few minutes flipping through their titles and not and noting other similarities it was great fun not only did i instantly spot half a dozen berserk healing factored clawed individuals but also saw a couple of red white and blue shield slingers as well needless to say we here at mighty marvel are thrilled by all the kind and thoughtful attention it just goes to show we blushingly admit that our comics are still the standard by which all of those are judged they're going to give a no prize to people who write in and tell them okay we saw a character or a comic book title which is obviously like a ripoff of one of theirs and they said the purpose of this contest is to have a little fun not to insult or embarrass any one of our captivating copiers please keep your letters polite and clever there's never an excuse for rudeness huh i really wish i would knew maybe i'll have to do a little bit of a look into this i wonder if anybody actually won this or or, or any of the uh any of the things that were pointed out so i'll have to look that up and maybe i'll if i can find enough about it i'll write about it on the, the pop culture affidavit blog let's do some bullpen borderline blather super chiasmatic nucleus i don't know pan troglodyte getaway specials smart money niche marketing space adaptation syndrome Katakana, Hidden Bias, Agricultural Runoff, Whistleblowing, huh, Little Lulu, Force Perspective, Cybercrime, C&D Counties, Alter Girls, Product Tampering, Mill Hunky, Cultural Carnivore, Categorical Representation, Digital Dinosaurs, Holding Pattern, Hattitudofear, Retrospective Trauma, Alley Oop, Politics of Virtue, and that is our last bullpen bulletins people flipping through to see what other ads we have in here there's a double page spread of Fleer ultra baseball series two rookies rockies marlins and more because this was the first season of both the colorado rockies and the florida marlins or now the miami marlins we have a pizza hut x-men pizza with all the extras You've got cups, comics. You can get a single topping personal pan pizza in a Marvel X-Men box. I wonder if any of those pop up on eBay. Uh, Joe Madureira, Madura, art with Larry with uh, Scott Hanna inks, by the way, on this uh, 90s X-Men coming at you illustration in here. Yeah, so just kind of reprints of a, a bunch of different stuff. It looks like it's fairly recent to them in terms of the artists and stuff looking at it because I see names like Joe Mad and Lee Weeks, Dwayne Turner, Chris Bacallo, Andy Kubert. So maybe some reprints of stuff like that. But yeah, 16-ounce X-Men Collector's Cup with a soft drink, one every two weeks. It's like what, back when Burger King did the He-Man and the Masters of the Universe ones back in the day. I wrote that, about that on the Pop Culture Affidavit blog a little while ago. The same Excalibur barbecue subscription ad, Zit Fighters from Outer Space, which also has an X-Men Collector's Edition comic book. I wonder how much any of these go for on eBay. I mean, there were like, there was the Charleston Chew one, there's this one, there's the Pizza Hut one. I can't imagine these go for anything. They probably, they're probably in random, like, you know, right next to the Captain America fights war against drugs or whatever. Uh, stuff in, in a 50 cent bin somewhere but you know for all you know there's a couple of them hanging around that people think they can get decent money for that's the type of random thing that if you had it and the person who drew it or wrote it was at a comic con you'd totally get it signed just for just for the fun of it maybe even ask them about that even though they're probably like yeah they just asked me to do it the back cover by the way is gonna we got to prepare ourselves for mortal monday on september 13th because mortal Kombat is coming out we've already mentioned that a couple of episodes ago so that is the ad 
And that brings us to the fact that this is, of course, the final issue of the NOM. And this was something that the editors and readers had known about for at least a few months. So, as a way to say goodbye, we have this farewell from Tim Tuohy, the assistant editor, who had been more or less running the book since taking over a few months back. And here's what he has to say. The Nam and Me. Welcome. Strange introduction for what will be the final letters page of the Nam. You're holding in your hands the last issue of what was called at Marvel the Great Experiment. The Nam wasn't going to be just any old war comic, but the definitive war comic. Sure, in the past, Marvel produced some fine battle action oriented books. The longevity of Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos shows that, but the Nam was going to be different. No matter how Sergeant Fury tried, the book still had that inexplicable Marvel feel. The Nam was going to be its own world, its own universe, and despite issue 40's one inf infamous deviation, that has remained true. Now wait a minute, you say, what about the Punisher and the Nam? Granted, the Punisher's name was used in the title in a very conscious attempt to lure in some more readers, but the star of the story was Frank Castle, not the Marvel Universal skull-clad vigilante. The first order of business was to find a way to set the Nam apart from the Marvel Universe of 1986. Setting the story back in the time wouldn't be enough. Putting aside Marvel time would be the thing that would do it. For those of you out there who are unfamiliar with the concept and you know who you are, I will put it to you as simply as I can. Franklin Richards has been four and a half for about ten years now. You figure it out. Okay, so the book was going to be based in real time. In between every issue, a month would pass between stories. By doing it this way, the reader would actually go through the whole 12-month tour of combat duty, 13 months if you were a Marine. The reader was now able to follow the step-by-step -step maturation of a young troop. How young? Well, in comparison, the average age of a combat troop in World War II was 26 years old, while in Vietnam it was 19 years old. Those troops grew up very fast. Barely out of high school, they left their country of birth and were sent to a foreign country which for 58,022 of these servicemen became their graves, or prisons from which some have yet to return. The Nam tried to cover as many aspects of the war as could be told in comic book form. The struggles, the brutality, the suffering, the painful homecomings, and of course the loss of friends and family. The Nam became a standout in our line as being the hardest hitting book at Marvel. Part of the reason was that the hits were real. Fictional characters were being put into situations that actually happened. A brand new concept at Marvel. The first 12 issues were some of the most revolutionary comics ever produced, and they still hold up today as well-crafted stories with top-notch art. The month-by-month -month system worked for a long time, but was slowly given up in order to do multi-part storylines. Most notable of these was the death of Joe Howen. This five-part story told the story of a vet's struggle after returning home to the world. These issues featured covers by current fan-favorite X-Men art artist Andy Kubert, and issue 58 boasted an early specialty cover before the boom of merchandise coverage really hit. Then came The Punisher. Actually, the first Punisher's Flash. Frank Castle stories appeared in issues 52 and 53. Why put The Punisher in the nom after 41 got such bad press? For those of you unaware, issue 41 guest starred Thor, Captain America, and Iron Man. Part of the Punisher's character development was that the time he had spent in Vietnam, so it seemed natural to include him in the Nam universe as well as the Marvel one. Those first two issues were so popular they spawned two sequels. The first appearing in issues 67, 68, and 69. The second, which was actually to begin in this issue, will now be in a bookshelf format edition written by Don Lomax and illustrated by this issue's artist, Alberto Saichan. The book will also feature artwork by combat story vet Joe Kubert. By changing the format of the book, we were able to cover specific events. This was evident with issues number 79, 80, and 81. The Tet Offensive issues, which showcased the triptych cover by Michael Golden, one of the most talented and nicest people I've had the pleasure of working with. The Tet Offensive in issue 24 covered one day of fighting, January 31st, 1968, while number 79, 80, and 81 encompassed 29 days of the conflict that marked the end of America's chances to win the war. The issue in your hands marks only the second time this book presented the view 
from a Vietnamese national, north or south. The art by Alberto Saichan, I hope you'll agree, is breathtaking. I was so amazed by his work that I immediately signed him on to do the final Punisher Invades the Nam on sale in early 94. I've rambled on long enough. Now for the last of our letters and a reminder about why the Nam is important to us and should be to you as well. Semper Fi, Tim Tui. And of course, that was the letter from Lisbeth Collar that I read a little earlier. And with that, I guess it's my turn. Before I get to my final words, I do have some feedback. First, I have an email from Professor Allen. He writes, Tom, I'm not sure if I've ever sent feedback for in-country, but since I'm running out of opportunities, it seemed like a good time to do so. I've thoroughly enjoyed your coverage of the comics and bulking out the show with movies, books, and other related media. What a great idea. Was that always there from the beginning? The goal to get to 100 episodes to bring in other material? I know that you posted a pic showing your original goal in terms of schedule, but don't worry about that. You wrapped it up in your own time, and that's just fine. Do you remember that first time we connected via podcast was way back in 2013 or 2014 when we covered the same issues of the NOM on the same day here and on the quarter bin? Good times. Curious if you are going to add another show to your list or if your other two shows, Pop Culture Affidavit and Wrangling Stella, are enough to scratch the creative itch. Whatever you do, I'll be here to listen. Again, good work, Professor Allen. Actually, if you listen to this episode, you've heard my ad for my uh, next podcast miniseries, Fallen Walls, Open Curtains, which is about the Cold War. That's going to be a quarterly one that's only really going to be about 10 or 12 episodes, I think, and it's going to take place over the next couple of years. My intent actually was always to do 100 episodes because I had 84 episodes of the NOM and then found out about the Punisher thing. So it ended up being about it would have been like about 85 or 87 if I had decided to do three separate episodes for that Punisher story. I was like, well, I could start covering movies and stuff like that. So it did kind of was kind of there from the beginning, but it, it morphed a little bit along the way. I, I didn't always have like, you know, I had kind of a, a small list of movies that I knew I was going to cover. And then, um, you know, as we went through the various, uh, various stories and the various films, the various eras, I, I kind of went one way and the other also depending on who I was able to get a hold of and uh, what I was able to get a hold of so yeah so thank you very much that other podcast is actually called required reading with Tom and Stella and speaking of Stella she also wrote in and she said Tom Tom congrats on finishing another fine show I was a little late to the party but I'm glad I waited so I could listen to practically the whole run in one go thanks for being my running buddy once again and by that, I mean your podcast accompanied me while I trained for a race. This was a fun one to listen to because I hear your evolution as a podcaster. You've come a long way, my Padawan, but you have much to learn. For example, there were key moments where you could have gushed about burgeoning love, but merely swept it under the rug. I'm thinking about that storyline with the nurse. You have to excuse Stella. She's a shipper. I was pleased, however, that you recognized recently the potential for a relationship, for a relationship and even made mention to me you are not a lost cause. I learned a great deal from this show, not only regarding the comic, but the historical background as well. I so appreciate the interviews and the moments you went off script and talked about a book or film based on the Vietnam War. In my opinion, this was a successful podcast and you should be proud. Your shipping co-host, Stella. Thank you, Stella. Really. No, I really, I really do appreciate that. And, and thank you for emailing in and, and for the kind words. That, that really does mean a lot. So before I, I give my final words here, I want to offer up some acknowledgments and thanks. Big thanks to Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell, who are the two true freaks in the two true freaks internet radio network. And big extra thanks to Scott, who invited me on the network about five or six years ago. Thanks to my wife, Amanda, for not minding when I went off to record all this every once in a while. Thanks to Gene Hendricks for helping promote the show via the TTF Twitter feed and to anyone out there in the podcasting community who retweeted me, liked something I post, mentioned the show, left a review on iTunes, or played one of my trailers. Thanks again to Professor Allen for the in-country quarterman crossover with issue 15. Thanks to Luke, Jack, and Eddie for coming on to do two outstanding movie episodes. Thank you to Doug Murray, Michael Golden, Wayne Van Zant, and Jimmy Palmiotti for taking the time to talk to me at our con or sit down for an interview. 
And of course, thank you to those creators and to everyone else who brought the nom to us, especially the aforementioned Misters Golden, Murray, and Van Zant, as well as writers Chuck Dixon and Don Lomax, and editors Larry Hama, Don Daly, and Tim Tuohy. But now we have reached the end. It took me longer to get here than I originally intended. I think I had figured out I would be done in four years. Instead, it took somewhere around six with a few lengthy breaks and adjustments to the release schedule as I dealt with whatever happened to be going on at one time or another. No matter, now I am fully headed back to the world. I've learned a lot through doing this podcast. Some of it was about comics in the 80s and early 90s, of course, but much of it was about the Vietnam War itself. It's not like I had never known anything about the war. My dad mentions things from time to time, although he doesn't talk about it in detail very often. And I had an outstanding 11th grade U.S. history teacher who did a whole unit on the war instead of rushing us through it before the regions exam. So thank you, Mr. Gerbino. But even then, I'd only known so much. And despite the education I received, my view of the war was not very nuanced. Doing this show allowed me to gain the perspective to see that nuance. The Vietnam War has so many sides to it. You have, as we saw this issue, the North Vietnamese who are fighting to unify their country under their communist ideals. You have the South Vietnamese who are struggling to stay independent and not fall under that communist rule. You have the politicians and corporations, quite a number of whom were using the circumstances of the war to their advantage, whether it be for political gain, monetary gain, or both. And of course, you have the soldiers and citizens of the United States and Vietnam that we have seen. The ones who either volunteered to fight, were drafted, protested, or were caught somewhere in the middle. I think it's that group of whom I think the most. This is going to come off as insensitive, and I don't intend it to, but it really wasn't until a few years ago that I truly began to consider the Vietnamese people when I thought about this war. I knew they were obviously there, but whenever I thought about Vietnam or the Vietnam War, the images that came to mind were that of American soldiers humping the boonies that I saw in movies or in television shows. But I have not only had the opportunity to read what I covered here, especially in the last few episodes, I've also had the pleasure of teaching students whose parents were born in Vietnam and immigrated to the United States, whom had been adopted by American parents. Since they were born at the end of the 90s, or by this point the early 2000s, they are even further removed from the war than I am, and that means that their context for Vietnam is that of their own heritage and their own culture. In fact, it is one of the advantages of teaching students who are from other countries or who have parents from other countries, but between what I've learned from them and what I've seen in stories like Laylee Hayslips and the, that Anthony Bourdain episode I talked about last episode, I'm grateful to have been given the chance to see Vietnam and the people of Vietnam behind those stock movie characters and background extras. The men and women who served, of course, are whom I think of the most and who are a major focus for these comics, movies, shows, and books I talked about. I've said before that I don't feel that it's exactly right for me to be making a call on whether or not we should have been there. After all, I was born in 1977, and I can only offer opinions through the lens of hindsight and history. The same can be said for the protest movement, which brings up as many complex feelings as the war itself. I can say that it took too long for the government to do right by the soldiers and veterans of this war, and in many ways it still is not doing right by our soldiers and veterans. Thankfully, we have advocacy organizations and charities who work tirelessly to improve this. And to inject some personal belief here, I will say that while I actually do not like war, and have not agreed with our government's decision to wage or remain in our current wars, I certainly think that those who serve and return are owed that opportunity to thrive in society. If that means that the government has to spend more tax dollars to ensure that they are physically and mentally healthy, then they are, yes, entitled to that. Many Vietnam veterans did not get that at first, and in many cases were ignored or deliberately forgotten. Part of that is in the fault of our government, and part of it is in the fault of our society, and the way it feels the need to constantly move on from events like this, acting selfishly instead of considering their human cost. The NAM and other entertainment of the era wound up being a way for people who were there to force those ignoring the war to see what had happened and what was going on. 
Both Doug Murray and Don Lomax, whose runs bookended this series, served in the war. Oliver Stone drew from his experiences, as well as those of Ron Kovic and Lee Hayslip. John Sacred Young of that created China Beach in the same way, and also drew from the memoir of Linda Vandevanter. Even Good Morning Vietnam, as fictionalized as it was, is based on the career of the late Adrian Tarnauer. This is conjecture on my part, but if you ask a number of those people why they chose to revisit what in many cases was a harrowing experience, it's because they feel a need to tell their stories. In a way, they are bearing witness, the same way that Eric Maria Remark bears witness in All Quiet on the Western Front, and the same way that Robert Kaniger and Joe Kubert bore witness, and then signed off with the phrase, Make War No More, in their classic World War II comics. This comic, in its way, was important. Others that have tackled similar serious times or issues have been published since, and I would put the nom up against any of the acclaimed graphic novels that are available to purchase or check out from your library. We got something that through and through was an honest look at the war in Vietnam. I'm very happy to have had the opportunity to bring it to you, and I hope that you'll continue to seek it out and read it in other stories like the ones we've covered. To all of our Vietnam veterans, I say, welcome home. To all of my listeners, I say thank you very much for listening, and take care. This has been In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics' The Nom. All stories and characters are copyright Marvel Comics. All clips have been for illustrative purposes and no infringement has been intended. You can find all the episodes of this show as well as show notes at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback via email can be sent at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. The Facebook page for the show is facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. You can follow me on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. This podcast has been a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast and for following the saga of The Nom. Send your sons off before it's too late and you can be the first ones in your block to have your boy come home in a box. And it's one, two, three, what are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. Next stop is Vietnam and it's fine.